The Bible is the story of God's redemptive plan unfolding throughout history. But if God is a triune being of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what does this mean for our understanding of the gospel? That's up next on The Dance of Life. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thanks so much for being with me. This is the Dance of Life podcast. My name is Tudor Alexander. I'm your host, as always. Thanks so much for being with me. I hope you're having a wonderful day. If not, make sure you cling to the Lord because these days are getting shorter and shorter, it seems, and the time is growing near. Now, I don't know when Christ will return, but we are living in the end times. You know, a lot of people are, well, technically, we've been living in the end times since the cross, but a lot of people are freaking out with everything that's going on in the world, especially at the time of this video, the whole situation with Israel. And I created an end time series for you. If you haven't yet checked it out, make sure you go watch that series. Get get familiar and confident with what's really happening in Bible prophecy, because things are not what they seem. And if you know anything about world history, if you know anything about secret societies, the powers that rule, the principalities that rule this earth currently. Of course, Christ is king and he's ruling from heaven, but the world is still Satan's world in some sense. And if you know anything about that, then you know that things are not what they seem and they're being guided towards an agenda, a solution. I'm not going to get much deeper into it than that. Please go check out the series if you haven't. What is happening with Israel right now is not what most of the people on YouTube are telling you is happening, or anywhere else for that matter. So go check it out. It's danceoflife.com slash end times. You can get a full comprehensive series if you've never known anything about the end times. If you're intimidated, if you're scared, if you have so many questions, then my promise to you is that series will take you from zero to 100% in confidence with the end times. So, and of course, if you have any questions on those things, feel free to reach out to me. That's tutor at danceoflife.com. And of course, I'm always available for you, regardless of end times questions or not. So feel free to reach out. But today we're continuing our series on the Trinity, a very exciting and important series because this concept has become a little bit under attack online from various groups of people. Various opinions are getting more and more traction, more popularity to question the Trinity, to teach against it. And this is a foundational Christian teaching. So it motivated me to create a very comprehensive series on the Trinity where we're going to unpack step by step everything that there should be to know about this topic. Now, of course, I don't mean that in an absolute sense. Otherwise, we would be here pretty much for the rest of time. But I mean, all of the foundational things that we need to know as Christians, my goal is to pack them into this series. So this series will probably be, you know, 10 episodes long-ish, you know, who knows, maybe longer, maybe shorter. But we are on the second episode, and we're talking about the Trinity in salvation. Now, most people don't understand, when I say people, I mean Christians especially, most Christians don't understand the importance of a Trinitarian gospel. Of course, we all believe in Jesus. We all confess he's the Messiah. But Mormons, for example, are not Trinitarians, and they use the same language that Orthodox Christians use. I don't mean Eastern Orthodox, I just mean Bible-believing Christians. They say Son of God, they say Messiah, they say Christ, but the meanings for Mormons for these words are very different than what a Trinitarian Christian 
would understand. So it's very important that we we are very clear about how we use our words. What do they mean? What does it mean that it's a Trinitarian gospel? And why is that important? Why is that so important? That's the question that hopefully we'll answer today and throughout this series because it is vitally important to the gospel that you understand it from a Trinitarian perspective. Now, of course, the Trinity is a mystery. And as we go through this series, we will marvel together. I really hope that we will marvel together at how much of a mystery it truly is. But nevertheless, it's there. This is what the Bible forces you into. And I hope to prove that throughout this series. But yes, of course, we know that Jesus is the one who died for our sins, who paid the debt that we couldn't pay. But the gospel itself, the plan of salvation, is a work of God. And God, as one being, is a triune being. And we don't understand how that works because two things cannot fit into the same space at the same time in our reality. But God created reality. He's not bound by the rules of reality. So for him, those things don't apply. He's three be- three persons in one being. And what that means is that the gospel as the work of God is really the work of the interplay between the persons within God, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this is a just a fascinating topic to me. And I hope you will find it fascinating too as we explore that today. But not understanding this important topic, which is the Trinitarian notion of the gospel, the Trinitarian perspective on the gospel, at the very least, you are harming your ability to marvel at God and marvel at God's work. Very much so, because when we really understand that it's a the gospel here is a concert of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we really just, at the very least, we marvel at the work of God. And of course, this marveling leads to other important notions like eternal security, which we will touch on a little bit later in this episode. But if you don't understand it, the, at the most, so at the least, it can harm your appreciation of the gospel, your understanding of the gospel, uh, your sense of eternal security, right? All those things are at the least consequence. The most consequence is it'll lead you into serious theological error and possibly apostasy. There's a lot of people who deny the Trinity and all of those backgrounds that call themselves Christians, like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, modalists, right? We will cover all of these in the future, not so much today, but all of these groups deny the Trinity and they all have works-based gospels. They all have false gospels because they deny the Trinity, because at the very least, you have to accept that Christ is divine and God, because otherwise, first off, that's what the Bible tells you in John 1 and other places, but if you reject that Christ is God, then there is no atonement for sins. There is no created being. We'll touch on this a little bit more as we go on today, but just a little bullet point. There is no created being that could possibly ever be made to atone for the sins of the world and to do that forever. And to vindicate God's character, to bring about eternal life, there is no created being that could do that. The only way possible for everything to have happened the way it happened was through the blood of an uncreated being, who is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, if you believe what the Bible tells you about that, that puts you in a pickle in some sense, at least according to the world's logic, because we know God the Father is God, but Jesus claimed to be God, and, and rightly so, because he is God. 
now you have what seems to be like two gods. But of course, the, the Bible reveals to you a greater mystery, which is that God is one, but existing in three divine persons. So very important topic with the Trinity being, you know, a part of the gospel, the Trinitarian view of the gospel, because we want to avoid, at the very least, we want to avoid, you know, not marveling at the Lord, because this is what we were created for. You and I were created to worship and marvel at God for the rest of eternity. The fulfillment of that purpose will be when Christ returns. Up until that point, we are just being sanctified. We're learning to cling to the Lord. We're learning to learn about him like you're doing through these Bible studies. But when he arrives, we will be able to fulfill our purpose, which is to marvel at God for the rest of eternity. And so having opportunities to do that, little sneak peeks, so to speak, through our understanding of theology and doctrines is very important in this life. But we want to also avoid serious error. Now, a little bit of review from last time. We just started this series, so if you are just joining, make sure you go check out. These are all cumulative, just like all the series are. I do my best to try to make them stand alone, but ultimately we have to go in a progressive fashion one way or another. But just a little review. Last time we talked about some things that are very important. We are invited, for example, to have fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is very important because if the Father alone is God, then you have a serious problem with what the Bible is encouraging you to do, to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, which is another proof text that the Holy Spirit is not a force, but a person. You don't have fellowship with forces. And having fellowship with Christ, if Christ and the Holy Spirit are not God, then the Bible is contradicting itself because that's idolatry. So very important things. Of course, many times we see multiple persons, like the baptism, the transfiguration, Christ referring to the Holy Spirit as a separate person, to the Father as a separate person. Obviously, there's multi-personal events and situations in the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, which we will cover later in a future episode with things like the angel of the Lord. But there's also inter-Trinitarian relationships. Now, I have created a study guide for this series that you can access for free. It's an infographic. So make sure you go to danceoflife.com slash trinity, and you can access all the episodes from this series as I will be making them and uploading them there. But you'll also be able to download a study guide with the relationships of the Trinity, with Bible passages, with all the wonderful things that will help and support your study of this very important topic. So make sure you check that out. I think it came out pretty good. I'm very happy with it. I I thank God for inspiring me to do it. I used to do a lot of graphic design, and I'm very grateful to be using these skills for something to glorify God. So make sure you check that out. It's free. Share it with your friends. But, you know, just some things from those relationships. We see, for example, the Father begets the Son. Uh, The Son glorifies the Father. The Father glorifies the Son. The Spirit proceeds from both. The Spirit searches the Father, and it also glorifies the Son. So there's a lot of inter-Trinitarian relationships that, it, again, this is not a static model of God. It, the Trinity is our best attempt at illustrating the dynamic existence of God as a being that exists in three persons, which, again, we can't really understand that because we have no frame of reference for it. But we talked about a lot of things in the in the last episode where we looked at the foundations of this doctrine, which is even in the physical world, you can see things that 
are evidence of complex unity. For example, two-headed snakes or Siamese twins. Now, some of these things, they are not natural, right? It's not the way that they're supposed to be. They're, they're probably results of the Genesis curse. But nonetheless, the point is the same. We have shadows and types in reality of complex unity. So very much logical. Of course, initially it doesn't seem logical, but logic is limited to the physical world. God is spirit. Spirits we saw just like the uh, boy or the man that was possessed that, demon, uh, that uh, Jesus freed from the demons. When he asked the, the entity what its name was, he said, we are many. My name is Legion. So they answered as one being, even though there were many of them. So in the spirit world, there are things that we just don't understand as far as consciousness, as far as, you know, superimposed realities. There's no space. It's a very different world, different reality from what we understand. So we shouldn't place limits on God and say, well, I don't understand that, so therefore it doesn't exist. Or that doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It doesn't exist. All these things we've refuted in the first episode because logic does not apply to God in the way that it applies to us. Now, we also talked about economy versus ontology, which are very important distinctions in this conversation. Economy refers to the functions and actions, whereas ontology refers to the nature of being. For example, in a family, that's one ontology, you have a husband and a wife. They both have the same ontology in the sense they're both human, they're both part of the one family, but they have different economies. You know, the, the husband gets the wife pregnant, the wife gets pregnant by the husband. These are different economies that are unique and specific to the husband or the wife, but it doesn't change their autonomy. The fact that the husband is getting the woman pregnant, or let's say the husband goes to work and the woman stays at home, that doesn't change ontology. It doesn't make the woman any less of a human being by staying at home. It doesn't make the man any less of a human being by staying at home. Do you see the difference between ontology and economy, which is very important? And even in our own conversations, we tend to forget this very important point, especially when we're upset with people or we're judging others, right? We tend to make judgments on their ontology, like they're less of a person for doing this and that, rather than looking simply at the economy, at judging their acts, and not their character. But that's a whole different conversation. Very important to not confuse these two because a lot of heresies, in fact, probably all of them, will always confuse these two things one way or another. You'll see, for example, when we start talking about the subordination of Jesus, which is very clear in the New Testament. He is subordinate to the Father, but this is an incarnational <clears throat> subordination, excuse me, versus eternal subordination, which is something we'll talk about in a future episode. But if Christ is eternally subordinate to the Father, then what happens is you have a change in ontology, a change in the nature of being. He's no longer equal with God, but rather something less, which is very important. That's eternal subordination, and that is not true. It's a false teaching. But we'll talk about that in a future episode. Again, there's a lot to unpack with the Trinity, and I like to take my time and go one step at a time because I want you to have resources. I want you to understand these things to the best of your ability and to really be empowered by that because the more we really study and show ourselves approved, the less that we can be deceived and tripped and distracted and attacked by the enemy. 
So today we're looking at the Trinity in salvation, which again is that the gospel is Trinitarian in nature. And we're going to look at why that's so important. But a couple of examples of Trinitarianism in the gospel are as follows. In Matthew 28, 19, we looked at this from the first episode. Christ says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, this is one name and you have three persons. And some people say, well, Matthew 28, 19 was added later by scribes. This is just a Catholic or slash Trinitarian conspiracy. But ultimately, when you study scribes, the nature of scribes, how scribes were, right, for hundreds and hundreds of years, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, and basically you you see, okay, what was the cultural attitudes of scribes? What was the rigor? What was the discipline of these people? You have a very different opinion because the reality is that these people, the scribes, were not conspiracy theorists. They were very loyal to the text, especially most of them were Jews, even into the early Christian era, of course. So, So scribes had an allegiance to the scriptures, to the word of God that was very high. So whenever they had to fill something in because they couldn't tell what it was written there, maybe something got destroyed, it was not based on a conspiracy. This is projecting our own modern-day attitudes and experiences onto 2,000 years ago. Scribes, if they did add it, if they did add this segment, it what it shows is that the Trinitarian view was already very widely accepted in the Christian church very early on. And we know that also from other places like the creeds, but you don't even need to look at that. You can look straight at scripture, which we will, because the Bible has forced you into a trinity from the beginning, from Genesis, all the way through. And of course, through Jesus, all of these things were revealed on a much more nuanced character. But the trinity has been around in the Bible since the very beginning. But again, a couple more examples in the New Testament we're speaking now. This is uh, 1 Peter 1, verse three, uh, 1 through 2. Greeting, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This, I think, is probably one of the most concise. I mean, if you could sum up the Trinitarian gospel in one verse, it would be this, 1 Peter 1, verse 2. For the foreknowledge of God the Father, and you're going to see how all these things are going to get some more color and flesh as we move on today. But foreknowledge of God the Father, God the Father's predestining in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit's the one who's sanctifying you and conforming you to the image of Christ so that you can obey Jesus and be like him and for the sprinkling of his blood. He's the propitiation. All three people are mentioned here. And of course, they're all equal, but they all have what? Different economies. Do you see that? Do you see the the economy versus ontology difference? Foreknowledge of God, sanctification of the spirit, obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood. All three persons are equal. They're all part of the plan, but they have different roles. They have different economies. Now, of course, you also have some other examples too, and these are just a few. This is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 
be with you all. So again, a Trinitarian blessing. Paul is not blessing you in the name of God the Father, but then a created being named Jesus and a force called the Holy Spirit. These are three persons. They're all part of one Godhead, one being. And again, we don't understand that fully, but this is what the Bible forces you into. And you can appreciate it and marvel at it. And you can see how today, hopefully you will see how that impacts your security, your hope, and your joy in the gospel, because the gospel is Trinitarian. Now, we're going to look at some specific verses. All these are listed on your Trinity handout on your infographic, so you can reference them there. These are not, you know, each of the things I'm going to go through for each, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these are just key verses that I chose to give you an idea of the different economies within the Trinity, right? What does the Father do? What does the Son do? What does the Holy Spirit do? So you have an understanding of how they work together. By no means you should be dogmatic about these in the sense that these are the only things that they do, because they're, remember one of the doctrines that we talked about in the first episode, the doctrine of simplicity. God is not made of separate parts, right? God is one being. Now, the Bible reveals that the Father is doing some things, the Son is doing some things, the Holy Spirit is doing some things, but it's, you know, he's one being. And this is the thing we have to remember when, when Christ said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, right? So we can't be too dogmatic about separating these, uh, these things so, you know, so, I guess, sterilely or just, you know, very analytically. But they're useful to, to flesh out this idea that the gospel is Trinitarian. So don't be too dogmatic about it, but each of these verses also could be its own Bible study. So know that I am also going very you know, surface level, in a sense, very generalized, so that you can just see the bigger picture. But if we start with the Father, of course, John 6, 44, and in John 6 in general is just a fantastic chapter to read on this particular subject. But the Father, is, uh, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So you've got the Father who's drawing you to Christ, which is a very, very key thing to remember. Father is drawing you to Christ. And of course, you have a different ontology or different economy here too, because Christ says, the Father's drawing you to me, and I'm the one raising you up on the last day. So again, difference of economies, but same ontology. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, it says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from the ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. So we should know that God, as a being, predestines things. He's sovereign over time. This is what the Bible teaches over and over again. I know it's a very controversial topic. But as we go on, even today, even though we're not talking about this topic, you will see very clearly that this is what the Bible teaches, because God is sovereign. If God is not sovereign over time and space and has control over the things that have happened and he's declared them, as he has the 1800 prophecies in the Bible, as he predestined the cross, like in Acts 4, verse 26 through 28, if he doesn't have control over that, then we do not, that's not the God of the Bible. That's an open theist view of God. But nonetheless, the point is that predestination, control over time, is associated with the Father. 
Now, we also have it in the New Testament very clearly so in the golden chain of redemption, which is found in Romans 8, verse 28 through 30. And it goes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, there's that foreknowledge again from the blessing we saw from Peter. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Of course, the Holy Spirit's the one conforming you through sanctification in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God, the Father, is the one drawing you to Christ. He's the one who justifies you. He's the one who unconditionally chose and predestined the people to give to Christ and basically set the stage. And then Christ is the one who, which we'll see, came into history atone for those people and intercedes for them as we speak because he's high priest and king in heaven, ruling as king at the right hand of God. But some other important verses that are part of this, again, these are just things to get your to mind going. I highly recommend that you go into scripture, into these chapters. You read the surrounding verses today. Again, is just overview. I'm not giving super a lot of context. I'm doing what I can, but my goal is really to do a bigger overview of this. And so I really encourage you to do a deeper study on each of these chapters yourself. Read the context, see the correlations, see the bigger picture, but also look at the details. But Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So both the Father and the Son are giving you grace and peace. If the Son is a created being, that's not possible. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So who is doing the choosing for the people to be in Christ? The Father is doing the choosing. He's the one who predestined, who draws, who calls, and arranges this for the Son even as he chose him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So you have a Trinitarian gospel because the Father is doing something, and so is Christ, obviously. Now in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 7, it says, wisdom from the Spirit, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Now, God, the Father, decreed this. Again, you see the constant themes, de decreeing before the ages, predestining, you know, basically setting it up before reality was even created. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It was blinded from them what was going to happen because otherwise they wouldn't have done it and led to the salvation of mankind. Now, of course, you also have in, in the Gospels, in Matthew 16, verse 17, where Peter, a little bit of context on this, Peter, so Christ says, who do you, think, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the first one who basically confesses the Christ. In verse 16 of, of Matthew 16, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what is... 
this is very important before we read Jesus' response. What is Jesus' response? Is Jesus' response, oh, good job, you know, you really got it. You did it, you finally figured it out with your free will and all of the, you know, intellect that I've given you. No, he didn't say, he doesn't say that at all. In fact, what he says is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven is the one who revealed it to him. Very, very important in the context of salvation. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot come to the realization of the truth on our own. We need a supernatural intervention of God. And this is one proof of this teaching. Because Peter didn't recognize Christ because of his own knowledge or his own free will or his own ability. The Father revealed that truth to him, pulled back the veil, and Peter marveled. So the Father reveals the Son, which is very important. So he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he decrees beforehand, and he arranges things for the Son. He gives the people to the Son, and he reveals the Son as well. So Father is working behind the scenes. He's decreeing what's going to happen, and he draws the elect to Christ and basically sets everything up for Jesus to take over and basically do it in time and space. Now, the Son, of course, we're most Christians should be pretty familiar with what the Son does in terms of salvation, but we should review these things because they're very, very important. And sometimes these nuances that we're going to cover, uh, even though I'm going more big picture look, these nuances are often ignored and are very, very important. So the Son also reveals the Father, just like the Father reveals the Son. And we have that from earlier in Matthew, in chapter 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And of course, we know that Jesus also said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we have this obvious separation between the two persons. And yet at the same time, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I'm the one revealing the Father to people. So you have these dualities that don't seem to make sense in our physical world. But that's why it's a mystery. That's why it's a paradox. It's it's an infinitely tantalizing mystery to think about that, how the Father and the Son are separate people. They're separate persons. Now remember the word person we have to detach from that understanding because person in our world comes with a lot of limitations. It comes with, first and foremost, the limitation of two things in the two things being in the same space at the same time. That's not possible in the physical world. So when we say person, we mean like a physical body, one consciousness, uh, you know, one one soul, one mind. We have we have a whole list of qualities when we say person that don't apply to God. Nevertheless, there are separate persons in in as much as we can understand that. And yet at the same time, you see the interplay, the unity. You have, you have the separation that you see, but also the unity, which is just really such a beautiful thing. But we also see that very important that Christ is the one that judges. This is in John 5, verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father claiming equality with God. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So again, if the Son is created, and the Bible says that all may honor the Son, in fact, Jesus is saying this. This is Jesus' own words. 
that you have to honor me the way that you honor the Father. That's a claim to deity. That's a claim of being equal with God. Now, if Jesus is a created being, doesn't matter how glorious of a created being, if you are honoring the Son as a created being, which is what the Mormons do, and you're trying to be faithful to the text, to the Word of God, and saying, honor the Son as you would honor the Father, you're breaking the first commandment. God would never tell you to do that. Of course, the Bible is consistent because honoring the Son is honoring the Father. The Son is God, and so is the Father. That's the only way to explain it, through the Trinity. That's why, again, these things are so very important. But the Son is going to judge. He's going to judge the living and the dead, and this is integral to the gospel. A lot of people forget that, yes, Jesus is love. God is love. But why is God love? Have you ever answered that question for yourself? Today, a lot of people say God is love, and this is preached all over, and and it should be, but it should be preached in context because God is love not because he tolerates your sin and, and loves you just the way you are. No, God the Father loves God the Son, and he's predestined you to be conformed to the Son's image so that he can love you forever. He doesn't love us the way we are, He loves us enough to conform us to the image of his eternal son. And that's mercy, that's grace, that's forgiveness, that's the gospel. And so God is love because first and foremost, he doesn't owe us anything and yet he's given us eternal life and conformed us to the image of his son. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to reveal his glory to anybody. Another reason why God is love is because Jesus, as God, died for your sins. He died for your sins as an innocent being who didn't have to do that. He didn't have to go through any of the horrendous torture and pain and suffering on your behalf, on my behalf. And yet he did to vindicate the Father's name and to usher in forgiveness and eternal life. That's why Jesus is love. But the reason Christ died is also tied to judgment. Because if there would be no forgiveness, then God would be just. And of course, he will be just, perfectly just. At the final judgment, those who do not believe in Christ who have not been saved, will be destroyed in the lake of fire along with Satan and the demons. So that's why God is love, because he saved you from judgment. There's no condemnation for the elect. So judgment is very much part of the gospel, and we should be very much aware that it is an integral part of the message of the gospel. Now, of course, we also know that Jesus atones. He came into the physical world to atone for sins, to be the propitiation, the once and for all sacrifice for sins. And we know that from many places, but John 1 verse 29, the next day he, this is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of course, this is also a reference to Old Testament sacrificial language. And if you've studied typology, very interesting set of topics. I think it's probably one of the most interesting in the Bible to study, which is just the types and shadows that the Bible paints of the future in Christ. And one of them is the many sacrifices in the Old Testament. Once you entered into the sanctuary, there was a lamb there. You put your hand on the lamb, and your sin is basically transferred to the lamb. That was a picture of what would happen through Christ, which is all just so fascinating. But Christ came into the world. The cross was predestined, Acts 4, verse 26 through 28. And the the reason everything exists is because Christ decided to come into the world. 
That was a free choice on his behalf. The father gave this people and this kingdom and this option and this this entire playbook to Christ and Christ accepted out of love for his father. And so we are being wrapped up between the, the between the love of the father and the son. It's a, it's a beautiful love story. And we get to benefit from that thanks to Christ. But it was Christ's decision to come into reality. And that's why the Bible says that everything was created for him and by him. Everything was created because Christ's decision to step into reality and to give his life. Now, very important, last two ones are keeping and interceding. In John 6, verse 39, again, I told you John 6 is a great chapter to focus on for some of these things, but Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me, meaning the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So who gave him what? The Father gave him the people that he's going to raise up on the last day. So again, the Father decreed, he unconditionally chose, he brought those people to Christ. Christ is the one that entered reality and redeemed them, and he's keeping them. He's not going to lose anybody that the Father gives him. Can you imagine? That's, again, this is now starting to paint the reasons why this is all important, which is eternal security. Can you imagine if Christ, the Son, lost something that the Father gave him? It's not possible. Not with God. So very, very important to understand these things. But he also intercedes. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Absolute. Does it say to save up until your free will decides to, you know, rebel? No, it says save to the uttermost. The Bible is absolute when it comes to pretty much everything it teaches about God, especially with the plan of salvation. Save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. But who? how do you draw near to God? Do you remember? John 6, verse 44, nobody can draw near to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So he is able to save to the uttermost Basically, those who the Father draws to him, why? Since he always lives to intercede, to make intercession for them. So let's break this down really quick. The Father's drawing the people to Christ. That the, the power of being attracted to Christ, of being revealed and saying, wow, just like Peter, the Father revealed Christ to Peter. And when we see Christ for who he is, for what he did, when we don't see the cross as foolishness anymore and we're born again, that's a work of the Father. That's the Father drawing you to Christ. Now, Christ lives forever and he lives to intercede. He's interceding for us constantly. So he's interceding and that means that all of the people all the people that the Father draws to him and, ca- and reveals the Son to them, He's able to intercede on their behalf and keep them forever. Do you see how this is so important to understand these interworkings between the Trinity and why it's so important? I hope you do because it's it's vastly important. Now, a couple more again. These are just reference verses. I highly encourage you to dive deeper into these and read the context, read the surrounding chapters. But Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, this is an important word here when he says lost. Lost implies that you had been. So when you, let's say we'll use the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep, because that's used throughout scripture. 
it, the, the lost sheep are not just random sheep in the wilderness that Christ finds and that he adopts them. Okay, Christ is not walking around with some grass and whatever wild sheep come up to him, he's the one who then rewards them with food. Of course, in this metaphor, it's salvation and it's your free will coming up to Christ. That's not what happens. What the Bible is painting over and over again with Christ being the good shepherd, with these parables of the lost sheep, you know, all these different metaphors constantly of sheep and shepherds, is that the sheep belong to the shepherd. Then you become lost and then you are found again, just like the coin, the parable of the coin. So many parables are dealing with this. You cannot be lost if you don't belong to anybody. Do you see the point? I hope you do, because being lost means that you belong to somebody. And if you belong to somebody, that means you that was already a done deal beforehand. And that's consistent with everything we've looked at. The Father decrees and justifies, predestines those who he's going to save and give to Christ. Of course, those people are born in time and space and they become lost to the world like we all do because this is Satan's kingdom. But the Father's drawing you to Christ. He's drawing you back. You become born again. And of course, Christ is interceding for people constantly until he returns and ushers in eternity. Do you see such a fascinating plan of salvation? To me, it's just, it's so beautiful the way it works. It's so rich and dynamic and just interesting to see three persons working on our behalf to not only save us, to plan our salvation, to keep us saved, and to give us eternal security. It's really very profound. But again, you know, in John 10, verse 27, uh, Jesus confirms these attitudes. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now remember when he says in another chapter, I believe in Matthew, he says many will come to knock on the door and say, Lord, Lord, open up. What does he say in response to these false teachers, false converts, false prophets? What does he say to them? Do you remember? Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Now, if you don't understand solidly that the gospel is Trinitarian, and because of that, you have different economies, like, for example, the Father predestining things and giving them to Christ, Christ knowing who, who the Father gave him and, and keeping all of those people, interceding for them. If you don't understand these things, even loosely, you will read that and freak out. You will read that and think, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my salvation. What if I'm one of those people when Christ returns, that he's going to turn me away and I'm going to be thrown in hell. Because you don't understand the Trinitarian gospel. It's very, very important to see these things because it gives you eternal security. If the Father is drawing you, and the only way that you can come to believe and see Christ is because the Father's revealed it to you, the Father's predestined this outcome, and predestined that you'd be conformed to the image of Christ, meaning that's a sure deal, that's that's a done deal. It's not like the Father's predestining the Holy Spirit to try to conform you, but then, you know, you might still break that and, and apostatize. No. <coughs> Excuse me. The Father is predestining the outcome. What's the outcome? The outcome is for you to be in the image of Christ. That's a predestined deal. It's a done deal in the future. You will be like Christ. You will be like God in the way that God intended it to be not in the way that the serpent lied to Eve, that you can be like God without God. 
You see how this works? The Father predestined this. And if that's the case, the Holy Spirit will achieve what he set out to achieve because he's God. And Christ will achieve what he's doing, which is interceding for you and keeping you just as he promised the Father. The Father said, hey, I'm predestining these people. Keep them. They're your sheep. Of course, the Son, out of the love for the Father, he's going to keep everybody that he's received from the Father. That's the most precious thing to the Son because it's a gift from the Father. These types of interpersonal attitudes are so important to understand because it helps arm your mind against false teachings. And hopefully you can understand what I'm referring to when I say false teachings. But he knows his sheep, meaning that the people who knock on the door at the end of time and say, Lord, Lord, open up, and he says, I never knew you, put it together. What does that mean? If Christ is God and he's lived forever, even before time, then for him to say, I never knew you, means that the Father never chose those people to give to Christ. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that you have honest Christians who are in faith, but then you know there's a chance that God might not know you because you've made a few mistakes or whatever else goes on in people's minds. This is not the truth. The truth is that those people, are it's talking about false converts, people that were never chosen by the Father, were never drawn to Christ by the Father. The Father never gave those people to Christ. Otherwise, Christ would be obligated to keep them. Do you see Do you see how important this is to have right theology on this particular topic? But in John 10, verse 30, we again, more, more context for all these things. I and the Father are one. Very important phrase. I and the Father are one. So remember, one, we've talked about this, and we'll talk about it a little bit more in future episodes. When he says one, one here denotes complex unity. This is not teaching modalism, because first and foremost, you have a lot of uh, situations like the baptism, like the transfiguration, where there are two persons speaking. Modalism has no answer for that, because modalism is a heresy, but that's besides the point. Remember that the word for one, like in the Shema, where it says, Hear, O Israel, our God is one, or two shall become one flesh, the word for one there is echad. Echad is a word that denotes complex unity. Okay, otherwise when you say two shall become one flesh, it means that the first time you sleep with your wife or your husband, you're literally physically conjoined and you can't separate. Obviously that's not the case. So it's talking about one, one ontology, right? That's what it means. So when the two shall become one flesh, what does that mean? They become bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You're my wife. You're my husband. We have the same ontology. We're one family now that we're married. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, he's not saying, hey, we're the same person. I'm just phasing in out of existence to kind of accomplish this, you know, father-son duality. No, he's saying we are the same ontology. I am God and so is the Father. We are both God. God is one being, but the Father and the Son are separate persons within that being, yet they are one God. Again, hard to understand because we don't have a, a reference for it. But the point is, if you could understand these things, like fully, 100%, first off, we don't understand fully anything, not even the things that we think we understand. But if you could, imagine what that would mean. You would not be able to marvel at it anymore. That means that God would not be the infinite creator who created time and space. How could you possibly understand anything about God? 
about God's nature, about God's being. I mean, how many things we talked about in the first episode that are not understandable? For example, omniscience. God knows everything that's ever happened and remembers everything that's ever happened. He can access it on a dime. He knows exactly what you've done, what the next person's done, every single person in reality. He knows it all. He's uncreated. How does that work? How does it work to be uncreated? We don't have any example. Probably out of all of God's attributes, that is the most confounding one, I think. Because like with omniscience, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy to think of all that knowledge in one mind. But we have kind of a shadow of it through, you know, like a, a computer or something, like a huge database that can hold a lot of information. Of course, I'm not comparing God to a database. My point is we have some frame of reference to understand like, wow, you know, God is just amazing that he knows all this knowledge when, you know, it takes you know, 30 servers to contain, you know, whatever, X amount of the internet. So we can compare and kind of marvel. But with uncreated, how do you, how do you, where's the reference for that? There's nothing that's uncreated. That is the most abstract, I think, part of God. And so if we don't understand that, how on earth can we question what he's revealed, which is that he's a tripersonal being? So be careful with the idea of logic. But some more important verses in John. John, again, is just very good for all these things because it's a very intimate gospel. John 11, verse 41. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you always, that you have heard me. I know that you have always hear, that, oh my gosh, I'm totally butchering this. Verse 42. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This is about Lazarus being raised from the dead. And so what is what is the Bible teaching here? Well, it's teaching you that Christ is always heard by the Father. Always. All the time. Not a single time the Father, the, the Son's prayers are not heard. Now, again, going back to some of these previous points, if he lives forever to intercede, and he's able to save to the uttermost, and if Christ is interceding for you and all of his prayers are always heard by the Father, What does that mean for you? Again, do you see the importance of a Trinitarian gospel? It means you have eternal security. It means you cannot lose your salvation. But if you believe that you have libertarian free will and you can choose outside of circumstance, just like God can, and you can trump the activity of the Son interceding on your part, even though the Father is drawing you to the Son, revealing you the Son, hearing all of the Son's prayers on your behalf, Somehow we have the ability to to cancel that activity. Doesn't make sense, does it? I hope you see that it doesn't make sense. But again, this is not a soteriology episode. This is about the Trinity, however it is related. It's very, very important. All these things kind of overshadow each other. Later in John 14, we have um, Jesus basically talking about a very interesting thing, which is having to do with being born again. And what happens when you're born again? What relationship, how do you engage in relationship with God when that happens? And he says, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and he will come to him and and we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that interesting? I think that's phenomenally interesting. So once you're born again, once you See the truth, which again is caused by the Father drawing you to Christ and revealing him to you. 
because he predestined it that way. Once you see the truth, what happens? Both the Father and the Son come to you and live with you and make their home with you. Isn't that fascinating that Jesus is speaking in the plural just like in Genesis, let us make man in our image? Very interesting. Again, it's a Trinitarian view of the gospel. It's not just Jesus that's in our hearts, but the Father and Christ are coming to be with us and to make our make their home with us. Very interesting. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, and the Helper, which is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Another proof, again, that the Holy Spirit is a person because he's referred with a personal pronoun, him, and he's a person that's separate from Jesus. Modalism is wrong. It's a heresy. It's a heresy for many reasons. But Jesus, basically, what do we see in this text is that Jesus did the atonement, he completed the mission, and then he leaves earth to ascend to the throne, to to take his right hand at the Father, to rule from heaven, which is another contested topic, but watch my end time series to learn the truth about that. I believe it's episode number three, is Jesus King now or in the future? And that's at danceoflife.com slash end times. But Jesus leaves to sit at the right hand of God, to intercede, to rule, and then the Spirit comes and basically handles things for the kingdom, right? He handles sanctification. He is guiding people to various locations, doing things, bringing to knowledge, all the things we're going to learn in just a second when we cover the Holy Spirit. But you can see here a Trinitarian gospel. Again, different economies. Christ is leaving to rule and to intercede. And then the Holy Spirit is coming in his place to basically manage and do things that need to be done on earth through the next, you know, whatever, how many long period of time, 2,000, 3,000 years, whatever it is, until Christ returns. Very important. But again, this proves that they're separate people. So what do we take from all this? We know that Jesus is our representative. He's God in the flesh. The Son, which is the second person of the Trinity, came into reality. That was his specific economy. He came into reality to handle what needed to be handled in terms of sacrifice, propitiation, revealing the Father, um, you know, doing miracles, showing who God is, showing God's mercy, God's humility of heart, God's love, and God's glory. We also know that Christ is of one mind with the Father and with the Spirit. This is very important. Separate people, but one in mind. Jesus reveals the Father, just like the Father reveals the Son. So there's a mutual revealing there that we see from Scripture. Very much important that the word reveal is used. That's specific because we see the Holy Spirit testifies, glorifies, but revealing is very intimately appropriated to just the Father and the Son. Which again, you know, don't need to be dogmatic about these things, but it is very interesting to understand. Just to see these light and shade and contours of this intertrinitarian relationship. Very interesting. Now, Jesus is also the one who performed the atonement, obviously. Now, if you are a modalist, you have a serious problem to explain because, first off, is is the Father dying on the cross and getting punished by himself to glorify himself? That doesn't make any sense. Of course, if you're a Unitarian and you deny the deity of Christ, then you are in a greater pickle 
or maybe equally as great. Who knows? They're both heresies. Because the deity of Christ is essential to the atonement. Christ cannot have atoned for the elect for all time if he was a created being. It's not possible. And a very easy way to understand that is you look at the Old Testament sacrifices. A bull was worth much more than a pigeon. God has a hierarchy of created things. That's why, for example, you don't sacrifice babies, human babies, because humans are made in the image of God. They're more valuable than bulls. And bulls are more valuable than pigeons. So things that are created with human beings being at the top are of different value. Okay? So if Jesus was created, or even worse, if you think that Jesus was born and that's when he was created, that he was just born, then there's no way that he could have atoned forever, for eternity, okay? When, when people practiced the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, you had a, a yearly day of atonement. Why? Because people kept sinning. And so what does that tell you? Again, you have hierarchies of, of things that are important. Bulls are more valuable than pigeons. And different sins require different, you know, cost. That's what God is trying to tell you. Like, look, your sin has a cost. Every time, every time you go and atone for your sin, you put your hand on that little lamb and you see it get killed. You have to realize the sin, the price of, the wages of sin is death, right? Romans 6.23. And so this is what God is trying to teach you over and over and over again. And we see that through the Old Testament. Now, if there's different value for different created things, and different things can atone for different sins, right? And of course, as you live, you have to keep atoning because these things, the, the, the atoning power of these created things runs out. Otherwise, you would just atone once and that's it. Okay, I sacrificed my bull. I'm, I'm good for all time. Do you see the point here why Jesus cannot be a created being? It doesn't matter how glorious because we're dealing with eternity. That's how. That's what proves that Christ is God because the only blood that would be able to atone for eternity forever is uncreated blood which has infinite value this is this is so important if jesus is created and you reject the trinity you are saying that a created being or a less than uncreated let's put it that way however many distinctions there are these days i mean there's all kinds of theories out there you at some point in eternity if god is just the atoning quality of that atonement would run out, especially if you're dealing with, you know, however many people are going to be saved, millions of people. It would run out. But you have one sacrifice for all time for everybody that's ever been saved, for all time. That is only possible through the infinite value of one being that is infinitely valuable. Only God is infinitely valuable. And this is the genius behind the atonement, is that God gave his own life, which is infinitely valuable, so that we could have eternal life. It's just fascinating. But you don't get that if you reject the Trinity. That's why the, the gospel is Trinitarian. It has to be. Now, we're going to jump to the Holy Spirit. This is the third person in the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit does several things. He gives life. He sanctifies. He guides us. He seals believers and he convicts. And we're going to look at all these different functions. They're each very important. But again, I highly encourage you to go and do a study for yourself on these things. They're 
These are just surface level things that we're looking at and touching on so you can see the light and shade within this dynamic model. So let's look at what scripture says. This is John 6, verse 63, and, he, and Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now, of course, we know that being born again is being a new creation, having new life, new spiritual life, being brought back to life. The first resurrection, in a, in a sense, like from Revelation uh, 20. These are spiritual things. You have a new spiritual life in Christ, and that is because of the Holy Spirit. But we also see parallels to other things, too, which is in Genesis, God breathed into Adam and he became a living being. Now, the word for spirit, pneuma, in Greek, is uh, the same in in Hebrew, uh, ruah. Basically, the, the word can mean breath, it can mean wind, it can mean spirits. So all these things are associated with each other. It's this ethereal quality of, of the invisible nature of God. And of course, Adam was made a living being. And then of course, you know, in John 20 verse 22, when Christ breathed on them, the Holy Spirit. And then he says, when he said, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He basically gives them the great commission. He sends them out. He, he blesses them and he makes them into new creations. This is an exact parallel to Genesis where Adam receives life from being just, you know, clay and dust and earth. And so God is doing, is showing you, again, types and shadows. When Adam was created, he was just a physical being. He didn't have the Holy Spirit. And of course he didn't because the whole point was to show you that God needs to inhabit you in order for you to live. But there had to be precedent for that, legal precedent, historical precedent, Adam and Eve had no clue as to their existence and to the, the magnitude of their own existence, meaning in their relationship to God. So that had to be proven through time. And by the time you get to the apostles, where Jesus basically breathes on them the Holy Spirit and, and completes this revelation that God is creating a new thing, a new spirituality of, of a church, a body of believers that are reconciled to him, that are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, and their new creations. So the Spirit gives life both physically and spiritually. Now, of course, we know from 2 Corinthians uh, 5, verse 17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new heart and new creation all come from the Holy Spirit. We can see some similar things earlier in the letter in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. And you Show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not by ink, but by the, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Of course, this is Old Testament language. If you're catching the parallel here to what? To when God wrote the Ten Commandments. But in this case, he is talking about a spiritual reality where God is the Holy Spirit, is writing his moral code, his character on human hearts. And this is this is a theme throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. You see shadows of the new covenant that would be through Christ as a spiritual reality where the Holy Spirit was indwelling us and, and conforming us to God's character. And Ezekiel 36 is a very popular one. Verse 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in within you. 
and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, this is, again, an insult to today's notion of libertarian free will. Because God is not saying, okay, here's here's the new covenant. I'm going to give you an opportunity that you can take advantage of that's going to really change your life. Is that what this text is saying? No, it's not. God is sovereignly declaring his power over everything, including your own will, your own stubbornness, your own sin. He's declaring his sovereignty over that. And what's he saying? He's, I'm going to put my spirit within you and cause you to obey my statutes and to walk in my statutes and to walk in my ways. He's going to cause you to do that. This is a fundamental teaching of the gospel. God is going to cause you to do that. Now, of course, this is generalized. Once we get to the New Testament, we see the shadows and and lights and contours and colors of how that causation happens. Well, the Father is drawing you to Christ. He's revealing who Christ is. Christ is atoning for you, and then he is interceding for you in heaven. And of course, the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and conforming you to Christ's image. So yeah, all three are causing you to walk in his statutes. Do you see how this works? The Old Testament is the type, shadow. The New Testament reveals the full color of the reality. Of course, also in Jeremiah 31, same thing, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It was never about external things. The external things were shadows and types of internal realities. The law was there so you understand God's character and how you can absolutely not measure up to it. So that when Christ comes, you see the fulfillment and you see the relief and the peace that he takes on the burden for you. And through your trust in him, that information of God's character is downloaded into you and and you're sanctified and you are conformed over time. And of course, the fullness and completion of all of this is when Christ returns to raise everybody to judge the living and the dead. We will get new bodies that are completely transformed, free of sin, free of trauma, free of you know all the, all the curses that we have today and all the problems that we have today. So all of this is a work in progress right now, but it's a guaranteed work of progress, which is very important. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that all of these testify to God doing the work. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 10, uh, 6, chapter 10, verse 6 through 9, Samuel gives, um, sorry, this, God gives Saul, <laughs> so many S's, God gives Saul the spirit and gives him a new heart. Then the spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, this is talking to Saul, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So we have being born again in the Old Testament. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings, to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. And I believe Saul was impatient here and disobeyed Samuel. But that's a topic for another time. Even though Saul disobeyed, he was saved. And why do I say that? Verse 9 tells us, when he turned his back, this is Saul, to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. This is so crucial. 
And all these signs came to pass. So God gave Saul a new heart. He turned him into another man. Now, the Old Testament was much more complex in terms of God's interaction because the cross had not happened yet. It was scheduled, but it hadn't happened yet. So you have situations where God removes his spirit in the sense that he removes the positive influence of the Holy Spirit and gives it back. It's it's an oscillating thing. But God gave Saul a new heart. God is doing the work. God is going to write the law in your hearts. God is going to cause you to walk in his statutes. God is the one giving you. It's always about God doing the work. The gospel is Trinitarian, and the gospel is God-glorifying. The moment we start putting our own sense of contribution to the outcome, no matter how small, if you believe that it's you that had faith, and you don't see the truth, which is that the Father is drawing you, that he predestined you, that he's revealed Christ to you so that you could have faith, that the Spirit is giving you the ability to believe and sanctifying you, and that Christ is interceding for you so that all of this can continue to happen. If you don't see that and you take ownership, then you start running into some problems. And of course, all of the synergistic religions, if you know what synergism is, basically the idea that we cooperate with God to achieve the outcome of salvation. All the synergistic religions are basically works-based. Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, all the pagan religions, every one of them, without question, is synergistic. The thing that makes the gospel unique, first off, is it's a Trinitarian gospel, and it's monergistic, meaning God is doing the work. We are participating. We have choices to make. We have responsibilities that we're given. We have a calling. We have gifts that we're given. Absolutely. But in terms of salvation and the outcome, God is doing the work through and through. And that's hopefully clear. But the Spirit does so many other things. He also gives talents. And that's in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So he apportions and he has a will about it. Again, another proof that the Spirit is a person and not a force or some sort of abstract notion of something happening. The Spirit is a person. He's probably the least understood or appreciated person in the Trinity because we we don't have any visual way of understanding the Spirit right? Other than, let's say, a dove at the baptism. Everybody relates to Christ, obviously, because Christ came in the flesh. But the Spirit is a person just like the Father is a person, just like the Son is a person. And the Spirit is also God, which is what we're going to prove in the next episode. We're not going to talk so much about that today. We're just looking at the roles that the Spirit has. He gives talents. He helps give life. And of course, gifts and, and spiritual gifts are part of receiving new life. Awareness of how to use your gifts and talents is part of that new life that the Spirit gives. That's why if you're struggling with life purpose, if you're struggling with your calling, spend time in prayer. Ask God to reveal that to you, to to help give you a boost, to help open your eyes, to guide you in the right direction. This is what the Spirit's job is. Because He does guide. We know that from John 14, verse 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is so important. Of course, this was addressed to the apostles. 
in the short term, but I believe it also has application to us because any time that we are struggling and feeling, you know what, I'm not going to remember this or I'm not going to do a good job. I'll give you a perfect example. Today's video, the first time that I recorded this, I recorded about an hour and a half and it canceled because I didn't have enough room (laughs) on my computer. I didn't check that. And so I'm doing this again. And I was really upset because the first time I recorded, it was a great recording. It was a great video, great podcast, a lot of great information. And I was really upset. But at the same time, I see it as a test. And it's a test to rely on God, to remember that exactly this verse here, John 14, 26, he will bring to mind everything that I have told you, meaning the word of God, the Bible, the things that you need to say will come to your mind. The things that you need to speak of will come to your mind. So how can you use your gifts to serve God? Because he will bring to mind what you need to say, what you need to do. He'll do it for you. It's 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 a concert of willingness on your part and God doing the work. Now, of course, God is going to persevere his saints. He will get you to the outcome. But we do have a part to play. And this is also a mystery how that works. Now, the Spirit also sanctifies. And we know that from several places. But one of them is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. But we ought also but we ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers beloved by the Lord because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Now this is a poor translation actually. I like the ESV which is what I'm using here, but if we go to the KJV it's a little more clear. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you. Much more clear what it's trying to say. Hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief in the truth. Now, very, very important here. Again, this is God choosing you from the beginning. This is a predestining thing. Okay, God in here is being parallel to the spirit. So it's probably talking about God the Father, right? Specifically because that's consistent with everything we've read so far. But either way, God as a being has predestined this outcome. And what is, it, what, is it, what is he predestined? Well, he's predestined you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. Now, this is a very interesting phrase right here, because the word salvation, and I'll try not to spend too much time on this, because this is a whole, probably whole study just in and of itself. The word salvation sometimes is used to denote being born again. That's the way most people understand it, right? But there's a very important understanding that you have to remember that the Jews, the Hebrews, and all the way into the New Testament were very much hoping for and looking forward to a redemption of their bodies, a resurrection, a healing of the Genesis curse, a return to paradise. That has been the ongoing theme of hope in the Bible, that we are going to return back to how it was. No more curse. And so sometimes, and this is one of them, when the word salvation is used, it is used to denote this end outcome. And the reason why it's, in this particular case, why it is this outcome is because in this case, sanctification is before salvation. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. He's chosen you for salvation through sanctification of the Holy Spirit. So meaning this salvation that is being spoken of in this particular verse 
is happening through sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Well, we know that we're justified in Christ. That's not something that's a gradual process. Being justified is, you know, black or white. Are you guilty? Are you innocent? So this is not the particular salvation that this is referring to. This is referring to the final culmination of the work of God, which is what was in Revelation. Behold, the dwelling, the dwelling place of man is with God. Or I should say the other way around, the, the dwelling place of God is with man. Because God is coming back down to us to live with us in paradise as the triune being in the body of Christ, the glorious form of Jesus. Feet like burnished bronze, eyes of flaming fire, white hair, supernatural being that's going to be on earth on a redeemed creation with us. This is the, this is the salvation spoken of here. And that salvation, you're being brought to that salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which is making you holy, making you separate, making you more like Christ, transforming your desires, giving you a new heart, all these things. But again, very, very important. What's, what's the overall idea? That this is predestined. God has, from the beginning, chosen you to salvation. Now, if this salvation is talking about the future salvation, meaning the final result, and God has chosen you for that, and basically decided that the Holy Spirit will get you there because he's chosen you and God accomplishes everything that he chooses to do, do you see why, again, having a Trinitarian view of the gospel leads you to the same conclusion over and over again, that you cannot lose your salvation? You cannot lose your salvation. You cannot frustrate the plans of God. If God has chosen you from the beginning for this outcome, for this eternal outcome, salvation in this case is talking about the eternal state where everything is redeemed. And he's appointed the Holy Spirit to his Holy Spirit to get you there. There is no way you can frustrate that plan because it's been predestined. So again, very important that we understand these things. But sanctification is not justification. That's very important to understand because some people, like the Eastern Orthodox Church, some churches teach that these things are the same. For example, they'll read this verse in question and take it out of context, and they'll see salvation here as justification, meaning the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you so that you can be saved, as in made right with God. Very important that you understand this. Being made right with God is a black and white deal. It's either guilty or innocent. That's a matter of faith. Do you believe Christ? Do you trust in Christ? Then you are saved. You are in a relationship with Christ. You're born again, and you receive the Holy Spirit. You, you have a new heart. Your life changes. You're justified. And of course, we know from other places like Romans 8, 28 through 30, that that whole scenario was predestined anyway, but that's besides the point. The point is that justification, the legal standing you have with God, is not sanctification. Sanctification is the process that happens after you get saved, meaning after you get justified through faith and you're born again. Are you perfect? No, you're going to be sanctified and made better and better and closer to Christ every day. And that process is not going to finish. The majority of that process will be done, I should say the whole thing will be completed when we get new bodies and we're resurrected or we're renewed if you happen to be alive when Christ returns. 
you'll be renewed and then you'll be completed. You'll be made in, in the new image. Until that point in time, we're getting conformed. We're, we're struggling with our sin. We're being convicted. We're repenting. We're coming back. We're, we're oscillating. That's just part of the journey. And the Spirit is there with you the whole time. That's the important lesson. Now, the Spirit also seals. This is a very another important thing. Ephesians 1 verse 13. <clears throat> Let's do ESV because KJV can be a little confusing. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So important. You know, again, it's the the Spirit is sanctifying you for salvation. And in this case, salvation is the future salvation that we're talking about. The the completion of the, the plan of salvation. So that was predestined. The Holy Spirit being given to you and sanctifying you and you being able to be aware of that is the guarantee of your inheritance of that future salvation. That is God's guarantee. God does not give you something as a guarantee that you can then go revoke and frustrate his plans and make God look powerless over the outcome. Now, some people say, oh, because he wants to respect free will. So he's, you know, tell me this, be honest. If you had a child of yours and you saw that child about to do something that would get them killed and you knew that that would happen, you knew without a shadow of a doubt that what what your child was about to do, even if your child is an, an adult child and they were going to do something that would get them killed, would you say, you know what, I'm just going to respect their free will. It's their choice. And you knew absolutely they would get them killed and you let them do that and they killed themselves. What would that say about you? That would make you guilty in God's eyes because you didn't do anything for your own child. And so if that's with us who are evil, how much more is it with God and his children? So this idea that God, oh, well, you know, he just wants you to respect your free will. God's not going to respect your will when your will is to do evil. Your will is to do evil. The heart is, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That's what the Bible says. And so when God says that he's going to cause you to walk in his ways, God doesn't care about libertarian free will, because first off, he's the only one that has libertarian free will. He didn't give us libertarian free will, and he's not going to let you frustrate his plans because the gospel is about his glory. How is it about his glory when God gives you a guarantee, but then you can turn around and kind of lose that guarantee or, you know, revoke it a few months later, a few years later. It doesn't work that way. If God has chosen to save you, he will persevere you and he will cause you to walk in his ways and be conformed to the image of Christ. It's an absolute deal. Very important. Now, the last thing that I put on here is that the Holy Spirit convicts. And this comes from John 16, verse 8. And there's a couple of important nuances here. John 16, 8. When when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So three very important convictions that Christ reveals as the economy of the Holy Spirit. Some things that he's doing that's very, very important. And I think getting this right is very important because a lot of people misunderstand the convictions of the Holy Spirit. So the primary world, the first one is what? Conv- concerning sin. Now, 
What is the sin spoken of? Well, he tells you, because they do not believe in me. The sin of unbelief is is the most important sin. Because if you do not believe in God, then you're you're damned. That is the that is the consistent sin that has always been addressed in the Bible. The sin of unbelief. It, it all starts from there. If you if you don't believe in God, if you don't trust his word, that opens the door to every other sin. Just how the devil tempted Eve. What did he do? He questioned God's word. Did God say this? Did God say that? He put doubt in Eve's mind and made her question God's character, God's word, God's intentions, God's power. It's all about questioning. The moment you question and you doubt, now, of course, we all have some doubts. We struggle with doubt. We struggle with frustration. But this is talking about basically atheism. You know, people who refuse to accept God as the sovereign who, who refused to accept that there even is a God, this is the sin of unbelief. And although we struggle with sin after we're saved, it's not talking about the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. Of course, the Holy Spirit gives you a new heart and you have a new conscience that is able to be sensitive to your sin. Even though you sin and you make mistakes, it's very different now. You treat it more seriously. But this is not exactly what it's addressing. It's addressing the sin of unbelief. Now, this is an, also an important nuance, a very important nuance which ties to everything we've been talking about because it can't be avoided. If, if the Holy Spirit is convicting the whole world of unbelief, what does that mean? That means that everybody will come to Christ. Because convicting means to actually feel convicted and, oh man, I need, to, I need to change. I'm convicted. That's what it means to be convicted. It doesn't mean to be warned. This is a very important understanding of the words being used here. Jesus is not saying when he comes, he will warn the world concerning sin. Because you can warn people, but they're just going to brush you aside. He says he will convict the world concerning sin. So, you have two options here. Either you accept election and that this is not talking about the world, I mean everybody, but rather the elect that are in the world that have yet to be awakened. The Holy Spirit's role now in time and space is to awaken people to the truth, to reveal to them the gospel, to convict their hearts that they've been rebellious, that they have not believed, and to come back to Christ. And that relies on being consistent with everything we've read. The Father has chosen some to give to Christ. He's predestined the outcome. He's drawing those people to Christ, revealing them. All those things before are consistent. But if you have a provisionist view, a synergistic view of atonement, of of salvation, if you don't know what those words mean, don't worry about it. It's basically that the plan of salvation is open to everybody according to their free will. Free will is the linchpin. You have a serious problem with a lot of texts, and this is one of them. Because what that means is, if the Holy Spirit is convicting the whole world, meaning everyone in the world is convicted and feels remorse for not believing in God and and submitting their lives to him, that means everybody in the world would be saved, and you have universalism. But that's patently not true, as you can tell just from looking at history. Most people are not saved. So this is not talking about convicting the entire world. It's talking about convicting the people in the world who still need to come to Christ. And of course, there's many 
throughout history, and that's the Holy Spirit's job, is to convict them and give them godly grief that leads to repentance. Now, the second conviction is concerning righteousness. And he says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. This is so important. And this is why I wanted to highlight this particular role of the Holy Spirit, because we forget this quite often. A lot of people, especially those that that teach against the Trinity, that error into legalism and other problems, will run into this because the Holy Spirit's one of the roles with believers. Why is first off, why is Jesus <clears throat> why is Jesus even saying what he's saying? Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What does that mean? Well, think about it from the apostles' perspective. The apostles just had <clears throat> all these supernatural experiences. They realized that Christ is the truth. He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. All this intimate journey they had with him for the last three and a half years is coming to an end, at least physically. He's leaving. That's a scary thing. That's a scary thing that he's revealed himself to basically be God on earth, and now it seems that he's leaving. The apostles are freaking out. Imagine how they felt. So that's why Jesus says, look, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is also to to convict you, meaning believers, that you're righteous because I'm leaving and you'll see me no longer. Meaning just because I'm leaving, you don't need to freak out. You're not going to be lost. You are righteous. You are in right standing with God. God is with you. And that's the voice of the Holy Spirit to remind you of all the things we've been talking about. He's the guarantee of your inheritance, that God is doing the work, that he perseveres the people he's chosen to save, that Christ will not lose anybody the Father has given him, that you can't come to the Father, or you can't come to the Son unless the Father's revealed him to you and drawn uh, you to him. All these things are the, the role of the Holy Spirit once you have been convicted of unbelief, you repent, you become born again. Now the Holy Spirit's convicting you of righteousness. Of course, you're going to have a new conscience, and you're going to be convicted of, of sins that you do much heavier than you did them before. But the role of the Holy Spirit is to remind you that you're righteous, not condemn you. So if you're feeling condemned, then that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. And we know also that other places confirm these types of things. That, For example, 2 Timothy uh, 1, verse 7, very popular verse, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God gave us a spirit of confidence the ability to love one another, the ability to love God, to do good, and the ability to turn away from sin. Now, of course, we still make mistakes because we're human, but the Holy Spirit's job is to remind you of righteousness, that you're not condemned, that God, that, that Christ's work is perfect, and that work was not just a static, stationary thing in history, but rather a living, dynamic thing that lives throughout history to provide grace supernaturally to give you a new heart and conform you to the image of God. It's a living thing. Grace is a supernatural work of God flowing through our lives. It is not a provision. It is not like a coupon that you take advantage of with your free will. It is a living, breathing, supernatural work of God dynamically working through us every day. And that's something to be marveling at course, in Romans 8, verse 16, it also says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
So the Spirit's role is to convict you of righteousness, meaning to remind you, to bear witness with your spirit that we are children of God. And I know sometimes I don't even feel that way. You know, ultimately, like I'm I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> you know, I, I grew up being a type A achiever, perfectionist. I never feel like I'm measuring up to my standards. I'm very impatient. Uh, you know, with some with some things I've gotten better with others, but overall I struggle with that. And I project those feelings onto God, especially when I make mistakes. You feel distant from God. You feel, you know, maybe that you're not measuring up to his standards and he's upset with you or, you know, he's going to condemn you. All these things are our own mind or flaming arrows from the evil one. And so this is to remind you that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict you of righteousness, which is very, very important. Now, the last role in uh, this verse from John 16, 8, is that he's to convict the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, again, this is very important because the unelect, meaning the people who God is not predestined to give to Christ, the people who Christ said, I never knew you, the unelect don't care about being convicted of the world of judgment. They don't, they don't care about any of those things. So again, conviction relates to people who are able to feel conviction. And that's only because God is predestined for those people to feel those things and to wake your heart up, to give you a new heart. We do not have the ability inherently within ourselves to come to God and to see that he's good, to see that he exists, to see that the cross is good. The world sees the cross as foolishness. So the, the conviction here is again, talking about the elect. And why is that important? Because it, the, Spirit's job is to remind you, look, this world is going to be judged. There's a final judgment. There's going to be an end of evil. There's a hope for the future. There's a resurrection. So what does that mean? Prepare. Prepare your life. Don't be attached to this world because it's going to burn. It's going to be judged. Spread the gospel. Use your gifts to use the time that you have to glorify God and spread the truth so that others might be saved, that others might be, um, you know, enjoying and, and delighting and marveling at the truth like you have. Of course, it's not up to us because God's plan is God's plan, but we are called to participate. And that's why judgment is important. A lot of people forget to preach judgment or to discuss judgment with others when they're talking about the gospel. The reason the gospel is good news is because the bad news is the world is going to be judged. God has set a time to close all accounts to, you know, bring justice for, for thousands and thousands of years of disobedience. And it's not going to be pretty if you are on the wrong side of that event. So that is a necessary part of the gospel. The gospel is interrelated with judgment. Absolutely. So we have to remember that. A couple other verses for you to ponder, to think about is First John 5, verse 7. For there are three that testify the spirit and the water and the blood and these three agree if we if we receive the testimony of men the testimony of god is greater for this is the testimony of god that he has borne concerning his son now this is a very important set of verses because the testimony of god who is testifying in this particular context there are three that testify the spirit testifies now the spirit we know from other places, that he's a person, that he has a will, that 
you know, he can be blasphemed. We haven't covered that. We'll look at, we'll look at that um, next time. But these things are indicative of a person and of divinity. And so if in verse 9 it says, we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Well, the testimony of God comes through, through who? The Spirit. If the Spirit is a person and it's the testimony of God, then that person is also God. Do you see how this works? So the Spirit testifies, God testifies, therefore the Spirit equals God. And in Romans 8, verse 26, we see, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So he brings to mind the things that we need to remember. When we need to pray, we don't really know how to pray. It's the Spirit that overcomes us and that that fills us with the right things to say and think and do. So the Spirit has a constant shepherding role over us, very intimate relationship with us in time and space from before we're born again to throughout the process to our death and to all the way to the resurrection. The Spirit is intimately involved with us at each step. And he's working on our behalf. He also causes us to receive a new heart, just like the Bible says. He conforms us to Christ's image through the work of sanctification. He reminds us that we're saved because of Christ's perfect work. And again, if you're doubting that you're saved, what it really says is you're doubting Christ's ability to save you, to have atoned for you. And you're doubting the the power of God as, as something that is completely sovereign over salvation and giving too much power to your own free will and to your own notions. So we, we panic that way, and the devil wants you to panic because ultimately what it says is you're doubting Christ, and that's a little victory for him. But we know that the, the Spirit convicts us of righteousness, and so when we get those thoughts, we should abandon them and take them captive. But the Spirit also reminds us that we are also bought for a price. Very important. So within being convicted of righteousness comes a dual understanding, which is just so profound. On one hand, you're reminded that you're righteous because God is doing the work. Christ is perfect. He did the perfect work for you. He's interceding for you. You're righteous with God. That's not going to change. It's the guarantee of your inheritance. But now on the other side, why are you righteous? Well, because Christ shed his blood for you. The infinitely valuable blood of the uncreated God has been shed on your behalf in a way that you would never deserve it and never have even possibly earned it. Not ever. Nada. Not possible. And yet, it was given to you as a free gift. So, you were bought for a price. Meaning, on one side you're encouraged, on the other side you're given a little push to act better. Of course, you're not judged by your acts. You're not saved by your good works. But these two Parts of the reality of being righteous is what keep us walking that narrow road. If we get too comfortable, the Spirit reminds us that we were bought for a price. You're righteous, remember, don't start slacking because you were bought for a price. If you get too obsessive about your mistakes, the Spirit pats you on the back and says, Hey, cheer up, man. You're righteous. God's doing the work. He's, he's got you. You're, I'm the guarantee of your inheritance. To see how this works, it's so profound. It's walking that narrow road with Christ, and it's it's avoiding these extremes where the devil is always trying to put you to extremes. The Bible says, don't go to the right or to the left over 16 times. Christ said, walk the narrow road. And all these things are 
for a reason, because the devil will pull you to one or the other of the, the sides of the road, one extreme or the other. And of course, the Spirit always gives us the spiritual gifts that we have, the talents that we have, whether they're spiritual gifts or they're just talents of various kinds. Craftsmanship, if you look in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God gave you know, a bunch of craftsmen talents so that they could accomplish the various projects that God needed for them. This has been a, a thing throughout the Bible. It's not just a New Testament teaching. So the Spirit is very, very involved with everything. And of course, why all of this is important is for eternal security. Eternal security is the reason why having a Trinitarian understanding of the gospel is absolutely important because the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is the message of being eternally secure in the work of God. It is trusting the Lord has done the perfect work and is doing that work through the Holy Spirit to maintain your salvation and also through the intercession of the Son and the drawing of the Father. All these things are actively happening. You're surrounded by God. Before you were born, it was predestined. During time and space, the Spirit is taking care of it. The Son is interceding. The Father is drawing you. And then in the future, eternity, you'll be resurrected, you'll be renewed. All of the, You're literally surrounded by God's grace, and you have no way to fail. This is the message of the gospel. And if we depart from that, we start getting into serious errors. I want you to consider a couple things. The Father is 100% faithful to the Son. We know that it works the same way for the Son to the Father, the Son to the Spirit. Each person is 100% faithful to the other, and to, actually to the other too. And they are of one mind for everything that they do. The Father is drawing and predestining and justifying those people that he gave to Christ. He gives them to Jesus. Jesus is keeping them. He's interceding for them. Of course, he, he atoned for them. And that was a once for all propitiation that made them in right standing. And he gave them the spirit. And of course, the spirit sanctifies and conforms the people to the image of Christ. He acts as the guarantee in their life of them possessing the future inheritance of a an eternal state, an eternal body. So if you add all that together, what do you get? You get that you cannot lose your salvation. And you get that libertarian free will and Arminianism are false teachings in the sense that they are, they're not accurate reflections of the gospel. The gospel is Trinitarian, and because it's Trinitarian, it testifies to the sovereign power of God and the lack of sovereignty that man has because there's no such thing. You have serious problems, and we're not going to get into all of them today because we're coming up to the end here, but you have serious problems if you do not respect the Trinitarian harmony. Let's put it that way. We're not, we're not even talking about people who reject the Trinity. I'm talking about right now about people who accept the Trinity but understand salvation in such a way that disrupts the harmony. For example, if the Son died for everybody, which is what provisionists teach and Arminians believe, if the son died for everybody, then you have a serious problem because you have discord within the Trinity. It's diverging from the Father's plans, which we know the Father predestined and called and justified those people, and he gave them to Christ. He didn't give everybody to Christ. He didn't give the whole world. 
But if Christ died for everybody, he now has died for more people than the Father gave to him, which doesn't make sense. The Spirit also seals believers as acts as the guarantee, but the Spirit is not for everybody. The Spirit is exclusive to a certain group, which is the elect, the people that God has chosen to save through his mercy. But if Christ died for everybody, he's not in alignment with the Spirit. That means he died for everybody, but the Spirit is only sealing some of those people. You have a lot of inter-Trinitarian disharmony when you believe that Christ died for everybody. Because you, in effect, are avoiding universalism by making the atonement impersonal. And there's a whole study on this. I'm not going to get into it today. But ultimately, if you look in the Old Testament, sacrifices were specific to a group of people. Whether it was Job sacrificing burnt offerings for his family, or the high priest atoning for Israel. It was always specific for the group of people. Sacrifices were not ever, not once, not a single time in the Bible, ever offered. And then you had to like take advantage of that opportunity through your free will choice. No, the sacrifice was offered on your behalf because you were a member of a particular group. In this case, that was a type and shadow for the group that God chose, which is the elect he chose unconditionally without any preference or based on anything that you did. Just like he chose the wicked, the villains of the story without anything, any preference. You know, Jacob, I have loved, he's how I have hated. So you have two people before they were ever born, right? That's what Romans says, so that God's plan of election might be revealed. It's always been about God. It's always been about God's glory, God's plan of salvation, God's choices, not our choices. And so you have real problems when you're dealing with the atonement being, you know, for everybody, as opposed to being for the people that God had chosen to save. Now, that's not a popular opinion, but if you understand the Trinitarian view of the gospel, which every Christian should, you will very quickly see that it is impossible for free will, libertarian free will, to be a factor in salvation. It's impossible. Because what it means is the Trinity is now in disharmony with one another. It's in disharmony with all the pictures of the Old Testament of sacrifices. And you have just a lot of inconsistencies. The Trinity tells you that the Father is drawing people to Christ, revealing them that otherwise you wouldn't be able to come to Christ. That the, the Spirit is your guarantee and He's sanctifying you and working on your behalf and, and helping you br- bring to mind what you need to remember and helping you pray as you should because you can't. That Jesus is interceding for you and He's able to save you to the uttermost. That's an absolute statement. All three people are working together and conspiring on your behalf but yet somehow you can still lose your salvation. Now, if you believe, so you have a choice now, after you present it with all the work of the Trinity, and if you believe that you can lose your salvation, then you are not in alignment with the word of God. Because you believe basically the man has more power than all three persons of the Trinity conspiring on your behalf constantly, before you were born, during your life, and you know in the future. You believe the man has more power than the Trinity. If you 
believe that you can't lose your salvation, which is what the Bible teaches you, because it's a work of God, then you have a serious problem with libertarian free will. It has to be rejected. That's the only logical conclusion. So it's one or the other, which is, again, all these things are so interrelated. Today is not so much a talk about soteriology or how we're saved, but these things are important to understand because we are talking about the Trinitarian understanding of the gospel. Now, a final thing I want to mention, again, if you are a Unitarian, if you are a modalist, you have so many problems with just what the testimony of Scripture says. If if there's two witnesses to tell the truth, which is what the Bible teaches, that two witnesses is the minimum needed for the truth, and Jesus tells you that the Father testifies and the Spirit testifies, and that's by design, so you understand, okay, Jesus is true, he's the truth, but if you're a Unitarian or a modalist even, then if God is, let's say, phasing in and out of existence and testifying about himself, you have one person testifying about himself. That doesn't make sense from a modalism perspective. Father seeks his own glory as well through different phases rather than having the Son glorify him and him glorifying the Son. So self-glorification, self-exaltation is a real issue if you're a modalist. What about dying on the cross? Did the Father die on the cross? And he's getting punished by himself? Who was in the grave for three days and three nights. I mean, so ultimately doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. But Unitarians also have a lot of problems. So the, the things I just talked about were more from modalists, not from much Unitarians, but Unitarians have their own set of problems. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, even though they're not necessarily openly Unitarian, they're basically kind of the same thing. You know, uh, anybody who's basically rejecting the deity of Christ, you have some serious problems with forgiveness and the atonement. You see, it all comes back to the atonement. It's it's just so profound. But understanding the atonement properly first requires you to understand that it's a Trinitarian gospel, a view of the atonement. And then that leads you to other conclusions as well. But if you reject the deity of Christ, you're already, you know, one foot in a ditch because you, you cannot have a proper atonement. You can't. There's no created being that would be able to atone for all sin for all time, for eternity. Not possible. Even if he was the most magnificently created being ever in the history of creation. At some point, whether it's a million years, whether it's a billion years, that atonement would run out based on everything else that we see with God's understanding and decree of how atonement works. A bull is more valuable than a pigeon. A bull can atone for more serious sins than a pigeon can. A bull can atone for more people. You know, there, there's different rankings of created things. You don't sacrifice babies because they're human beings. They're made in the image of God. They have the highest value. So there's a rank of value, and that value relates to how much you can atone. Uh, of course, again, you're not going to sacrifice human beings, but the point is there's a rank and value of created things. So if Jesus is created, doesn't matter how created he is, how brilliant he is, if he's created, he has a set value. Do you see my point? That set value will get eaten up in eternity. That's why Unitarianism is a heresy, because you cannot have the atonement if you are a Unitarian. You can't. 
The only way you have an infinitely covering atonement, infinite bank account, is by an infinitely valuable sacrifice. There is only one infinitely valuable sacrifice, and that is from the infinitely valuable Son of God. And if the Son is God, and he's infinitely valuable, he's uncreated, then the Father is God, then you have at least two people. So you cannot have Unitarianism. It's false. But of course, the Spirit is God, and we're going to learn that next time. We're going to look at how the Father is God and how the Spirit is God, because after that, we're going to spend a few episodes on Jesus, on Christ, because obviously he's the one that revealed himself physically, and there's a lot that we need to talk about. There's a lot of people who deny that Jesus ever said that he's God or that he made himself equal to God, and all these things are just not true. I will show you scripture by scripture where Jesus claimed to be God, where Jesus made himself equal with God, where there's divinity of Jesus being pointed to both by himself and by the apostles and the people around him. So I hope that's been edifying for you. I know it's a lot to talk about, but these things are so important and having a Trinitarian understanding of the gospel is so valuable. I know it's been valuable in my life. It's helped me first off marvel at the Lord, at his plan of salvation working in my own life, and it's given me eternal security. It's given me reassurance because, again, I don't know about you. I'm a perfectionist. I tend to get on myself for everything, and it's nice to come back to the Word and to remember what does the Word say about salvation. And what it says is that a triune being of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have conspired on your behalf from before you were born, throughout your life, and into eternity to conform you to the image of God, which is a beautiful, beautiful message. And I truly hope that it gives you hope. I hope it gives you joy. And I hope it makes you marvel ever some more at God and his plan for your life. And share this with anybody who you feel may need to hear this message today. But other way, uh, otherwise, I hope to see you next time. We'll begin a, jumping into a little more scripture with, again, the Father and the Holy Spirit and how... The Father is an easy one. Obviously, everybody knows the Father is God, but we're going to look at mostly how the Spirit is both a person. We're going to look at some original language. We're going to look at various scriptures. And we're going to look at how the Spirit is actually God. God as a person. And the Father is God, and of course, the Son is God. So you have a trinity. The the Bible forces you into a trinity. And like I said, it's not something that we made up. That's the first episode I said this. We, We didn't make up the trinity. We're being forced into it by the Bible because this is what God has chosen to reveal about himself. And thank God that he has because it's such a marvelous thing. It leads us to eternal security and his plan for salvation. So until next time, thanks so much for being here and we'll see you around. Hey, thanks for being here. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And if you want in-depth Bible studies, free resources, encouragement, or if you just want to get in touch with me, check out danceoflife.com. Until next time, God bless.